0: just just introduce yourself i feel like that's a good place to start
1: yeah sounds good uh hey my name is alex pan i am a computational scientist uh who specializes in bioinformatics at um the ohio state university uh comprehensive cancer center and so kind of what i do on the daily basis is look at like um genomic sequencing data and uh i work closely with physicians and other uh phd scientists to answer you know whatever biological questions they may have they may have so that's kind of in a nutshell what i do
0: is there a particular overarching problem you're working on right now
1: yeah so uh the the group that i am a part of is the uh, hematology group so um it's at least at osu like uh, osu uh cancer center does a really good job of hematology um the team is led by uh uh, um, a principal investigator by the name of uh, dr john bird he's uh, really incredible um and he he's really well known in the field of uh chronic lymphocytic leukemia so most of my efforts go towards um, studying this uh this specific uh cancer um it's uh the i believe it's the most prevalent leukemia in um in uh in the west and basically what the group has done in the past is they've um, they've helped push forward an FDA-approved drug called abrutinib and it basically uh, w- turned CLL, which is um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, from this death sentence to something that people just come into the pharmacy, grab like a pill bottle, and take, and and can live sustainably with with the disease. So most of my research goes towards that effort, um, although the the uh, the project I'm working with now is specifically a methods uh, is specifically developing different methods to look at um, CLL.
0: So what uh, I guess let, let's dig deeper into looking at CLL. So it seems like it used to be a death sentence. Now it's not, I guess, what was the process from going to, this is a total death sentence to it is, you know, it, you can actually have a chance.
1: Yeah. So it, it's so. To be honest, uh, since I'm relatively new into the field of CLL, I can't tell you exactly what the historical process would have been. But generally, like with uh, like with leukemias, the the reason why leukemias are so hard to treat is because um, it's the cancer of the blood, right? And so, cancer cells are instead of like cancer cells being isolated to a tumor to a specific part of your body they are just circulating throughout the entirety of it. Right. So it's hard to hit it with radiation because you'll just be radiating everything. It's, um, it's hard to hit it with specific drugs because the toxicity is extremely profound and it will just circulate throughout the entire body. Right. And, and so leukemia has always been difficult. And, and, and oh, and, and, one thing I forgot to mention was like specifically the, the origins of the disease. Right. I mean, like, um, your bone marrow, your bone marrow is what produces blood cells. And so it's, it's really difficult. It's really, really difficult to treat it, you know, unless you get like a full bone marrow transplant or, you know, like get really lucky with some specific type of chemo or, um, even, even newer forms of like immunotherapy. Um, so what makes ibrutinib really interesting, right. Is, um, it's specifically, uh, it's specifically that's uh, it's something it's called a BTK inhibitor, it, it, and basically your CLL cells, um, your CLL cells have a really distinct gene like like genotype, which means just like a like a genome signature, right? And so uh, normal. So what, what you would ha- what this drug would do actually is that your your B cells have these receptors that they uh, on the surface of the, uh, on the surface of their bodies that generally go. And activate the immune system, right? Because that's kind of the B cell's job. Um, with CLL, that function is impaired or gone haywire. Uh, and so, what this drug does is it acts as an inhibitor to one of the downstream molecules for that receptor, basically just shutting off the function of that B cell. So these people are still living with CLL, people who take this drug, but it they uh, but the drug effectively has tamed it, right? So. The, the, I mean like because these B cells can't go out and react and proliferate right they become much lower in number and and although they're still technically present in the blood, they're uh, if in the course of you know remission right it's uh, the cells are generally undetectable but they're still technically living with CLL.
0: Got it. so I guess then what is your current investigation? like what, what is the effort aimed towards?
1: Right. So the problem is that this drug doesn't cure patients. Uh, I mean, there's still a subset of patients who either don't respond to the drug at all. And um, especially in, uh, especially in uh, like leukemia, there are high chances of relapse. So you might respond initially to the drug really well. Um, and after, a while, after like three or five years, your, your, your cancer might come back. And once it comes back, there are very, very few drugs out there that have any sort of effect in, in stopping you from uh, dying at that point. And so the what so there is a, so there's a push to find new age BTK inhibitors, which is like basically the same type the class of drug Ibrutinib is. Um, and in addition to that there's also a really big push to understand um, it, a, a really big push to understand, well, what is the, the resistance phenotype actually look like you know what genes are actually going ahead and driving resistance and third and, and i know i'm kind of being really reverse uh, verbose here but third is seeing what other cells might interact with your with your cll cells so you're uh, you know like they're you know when we say the word blood right it encompasses a class of cells right Uh, you know your natural killer cells your your different types of t cells um your different types of b cells your uh um, your monocytes and you know dendritic cells so on and so forth so there's another big push to understand how those cells come into play and actually either you know prevent you from getting cll or you know uh uh, um suppressing the disease
0: right so you i guess it's you're looking at the upstream and downstream now right that that's
1: yes which, which makes the problem you know exceedingly difficult right and, and yeah yeah
0: so i guess i, I want to dig in deeper and be more specific now it's okay so now you have a very targeted problem you 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 want to understand how you know let's, let's just talk about the the analysis of this receptor you said there's a, there's a genotype involved right and that's right. how the, that's how the drug this inhibitor becomes effective Right. So, so how, I guess, how, how do you get to that point? How do you, what kind of tools exist for you to be able to identify this particular signature?
1: Right. So um, I'm not going to talk about the wet lab too, too much, mostly because I am not a wet lab scientist, um, but there, uh, but, but uh, just to touch on it briefly uh, is that you can do, um, you can do like a lot of like uh, Western blots or different types of assays where you make sure that the drug is binding to like what you think it's binding to and the way that you would do that is you know just combining um like bits of this protein with the drug and seeing if it seeing if it fluoresces on your on your gel or right and, and just taking some pictures and i, I know I'm very very much simplifying that but that's that's not what i specialize in what i specialize in is high throughput genomic sequencing and so what that so so let me, let me clarify this a little bit before we go on because um, I think getting, getting the terminology and getting like uh, what high-throughput sequencing even is is going gonna, is gonna to be uh, pretty important to kind of understanding what's coming down the line. So when, when sequencing first started, right, it, it was generally you could like, you, what, you would, what you would do is you would try to isolate one DNA sequence that you're interested in you would try to amplify that, that that sequence so you can actually detect it and then you would just sequence that one thing and that was what was called like center sequencing right um you, basically you're you you only had the computational capability to to look at one particular strand and analyze that one particular little piece of dna what is incredible nowadays is that you can do hundreds of millions of sequences in parallel now so instead of just doing things sequentially Uh, you have this incredible assay where you can sequence like a person's genome a hundred times over and have it cost less than a couple hundred bucks. Um, And and so now you have an incredibly rich set of data that you can actually go in and analyze. And on top of that, it's not just genomic DNA data. You can, you can go ahead and sequence. Um, You can also sequence different, uh, other uh, other types of uh, omics information. So for example, the transcriptome. So um, DNA, for example, codes for genes, but the thing that actually turn turns these genes into proteins is RNA. So RNA is also incredibly look, important to look at. So you can also go ahead and sequence your RNA as well. And on top of other things.
0: So I just want to take a... a, a... Brief second for you to explain the the, the 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 process of going from DNA to RNA to to just just this process to kind of ground us a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I, yeah, I apologize because I because I real like I I'm I'm definitely yeah I'm definitely jumping the gun here and not providing enough background information and, and, and I'm making some assumptions that I shouldn't be.
0: No, but, but it's cool. So I just want to start with DNA and, and take me through the process. Like what happens with DNA? Everybody you know, knows about DNA.
1: Yeah, everybody knows about DNA, right? So DNA, uh, over 50% of your, your, your genome doesn't code for code for squat. Um, so it's, and, and although the things that don't code for anything pro- provide important regulatory information, although the, you know, the specific effects aren't totally known, right? Um, generally, what people look at is your coding sequences, right? Because your coding sequences actually get turned into proteins that actually do something in your biology, right? So the way that that happens is that you ha- uh, your DNA first co- gets converted to RNA. And this is a process called transcription. Once your, once your, once your DNA has been transcribed into RNA, your ribosomes will pick up on the little bits of RNA and it'll read the RNA and it will assemble the protein based off of, off of what it sees. So the sequence of the DNA determines what type of protein. The quantity of the RNA determines how much of that protein. So that's really the, that, that's really the key, that's really the key information here. So looking at the DNA, you can figure out, you know, you can really get a better sense for, you know, what types of mutations are happening, right. But based off of the RNA, you can tell whether that gene is even being expressed or not, because maybe a genes mutated, but if it's not being expressed, or doesn't usually get expressed, maybe it's not important to look at. Right.
0: So does that just look like actually looking around for RNA and then figuring out, you know, if if it doesn't exist, then there must have been some corresponding sequence of DNA That is not being used.
1: Exactly. That's the assumption. That's the assumption. And, and and like, that's actually really interesting. Um, that's actually a really interesting question that you brought up. Right. You know, just because you see RNA, it, it doesn't correlate one-to-one with that DNA definitely being expressed to that degree. Um, there's a lot of studies being done uh, that have been done on this and they they truly aren't one-to-one, but they are good enough that you can, you can say something about
0: Could you, uh, just touch on why it's not one-to-one? It doesn't seem super obvious to me.
1: So there are a lot, like you have what, one has like a couple thousand like, I believe like on the order of like 5,000 genes, um, in your, in your genome, but the number of different RNAs that you can assemble from those genes is actually on the order of like tens of thousands. And considering how little input material that you can start off with, it's difficult. So one thing that I'm also kind of, this is a really complicated process. One, one of the, one of the things for us to be able to even sequence these things to begin with is to start with, you know, however small input we amplify it out. And after you amplify it, you're able to detect it. So that amplification process isn't perfectly symmetric. It's not as if, It will always capture like that one little bit of RNA um, and amplify out to the same degree it amplifies other bits of RNA that it catches. And so the the inherent asymmetry in this amplification process, right, causes differences in the true expression of that gene versus what you actually measure, And you can computationally adjust for this, but it, it is there nonetheless.
0: So in, in a perfect situation where you could do this amplification process without any issue, you would see proper ratios, right?
1: Yes. And so there one more caveat. So, and so now you're kind of, so now you're asking, so, so now if you can control for this perfectly, the, the one more additional thing that would, uh, that would also skew your expression results are epigenetic modif- modifications. So uh, epigenetic modifications are things, are changes that you can make to like your, the, the things that are like y- your genes that are being expressed that are not directly like mutations. So I'm not changing the actual sequence of a, C's, T's and G's in your DNA. I'm, you know, adding a protein that stops it from being turned into RNA. Right, so those are those are epigenetic modifications, and we also have uh, epigenetic sequencing, and, and and generally your RNA expression and places where you have epigenetic modifications they correspond pretty well, but it's also still not perfect. Um, this is not to say that you know looking at RNA is useless, right? It, it, because it's not. You're you're still at, you're still profiling tens of thousands of genes. Um, And you're still getting quantitative statistics on each particular gene that you profile. And so if you get enough samples and you profile enough things, you'll still come to some level of ground truth.
0: Yeah, it just seems like it would be quite a uh, tricky process to really figure out what's what, right? So if I figure out that here's this amount of RNA, here's this amount of RNA, and this this is our amount of RNA, do I combine that information with this epigenomic data to then figure out what true proportions are being expressed
1: well yeah absolutely i I mean like you know if if if, uh if uh principal investigators and scientists had infinite money right what you you, what you would always do is have multi-dimensional omics data right where you do the you know the epigenetics and the rna and the dna all at the same time right in a perfect world and if you knew if you had the computational power and the know-how you could be able to correlate everything together but it's not a perfect world. <laughs> uh, p- we don't have infinite funding. And it's uh, technically difficult to do these types of correlations as well. So generally, you just go with one thing. And you so increase the number of things you sequence. Are,
0: are there statistics that you can use to kind of account for the fact that you don't have those additional dimensions of information?
1: Absolutely. So, um, and, and I think this is kind of what gets to the heart of what you. I think you wanted to discuss with me. which is so um generally a lot of papers in the bioinformatics world are are algorithms to discuss what is the best way to process this data and get meaningful information out of it um you know i i've like i've i've mentioned that this amplification process is not is not perfect, right? And you can you can imagine how a tiny change in the initial conditions can precipitate out to pretty large different large effects. Um and so you know, like depending on the like the 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 company that you ordered the reagents from, depending on the lab member or team member who did who who ran the experiment for you, and, and depending on the sequencer, right? Your 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 data can be pretty different. Um and, and you know, you have to separate that noise from signal. Um, so like, like to kind of ground it in my, our, to kind of go back to CLL, right? What I would do with the CLL data is I would sequence normal. I would, I would sequence like, uh, CLL patients who responded well to therapy. And I would sequence patients who didn't respond well to therapy. And I could look at their corresponding RNA expressions and tell you what genes are being significantly mod- modulated in one group versus the other. And I could give you some level of information about okay, what did these, these what did these genes do, and how do they interact with each other, right? To figure out what potential pathways are even being affected. Um,
0: can can we stop for a second? Uh, I just want to I just want to kind of ground this a little bit more because I'm I'm slightly confused. When you say take this this sequence information from the CLL patient, right? What what is that in regard to? Is that like all of their possible rnas or is that restricted somehow Uh, i I guess i'm not sure
1: so um there's a lot of caveats here but different like let's just go with let's just go with that you can actually see all the rnas yes
0: so all the rna that's possibly being created in that patient
1: in this in the sample that you get from them okay in the sample that you get from them uh, like it, it really depends on how much input material you're starting with. Uh, and, and, and I know that I'm, I, I know I'm jumping around a lot, but this, this field is so deep and, 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 I, and you know, I'm, I'm green, so I'm not doing it justice, but one of the crazy things about sequencing nowadays as well is that, uh, the amount of input that you need to get like reasonable se- sequencing results is getting smaller at this. Like one of the crazy things in the field right now is that. I don't have to get like a bulk sample. Like I, I don't have to go in and cut out like a big piece of your tumor or I don't have to get, go and get a huge vial of your blood. I can sequence like at a single cell and I could sequence each individual cell and tell you compre like, you know, tell you comprehensive information about the RNA in each given cell and use that information to tell you about how like the disease affects different cells in your system, or maybe there are two separate populations of the same cell uh, that behave differently that we can target. And and so, yes, it, it, like, depending on how deep you sequence, how much input, that's how much, that's how much, that's how much of the RNA that you're actually getting.
0: So there, there is some process that exists where I could take a patient who has been given this medicine for, for CLL, and then specifically target one of the cells of interest and sequence that cell.
1: Well, the question is, what's the cell of interest?
0: Yes. So this is the question,
1: right? Exactly. That's 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 the problem that you're that we're trying to solve, right? It's not obvious as to what's the cell of interest, and that's why it takes. And let's let's bring it back to statistics, right? Now that you've sequenced all of these cells or all of these samples, right? Now it's a matter of, you know, like. Let me implement some statistical algorithm that can separate out the noise from the signal. And then given, you know, like, like the hel- like, you know, given like the, like, uh, the, uh, the healthy groups, uh, signal and the disease group signal, what's actually significant, right. What's actually being significantly changed.
0: So I guess, what does that look like in my mind? You can, you can say you could get like a hundred cells from, from a healthy patient and a hundred cells from someone who still, I guess, still, still is suffering from the disease. Right. What you're doing is somehow performing a statistical analysis to figure out which cells can really indicate with some degree of certainty that this patient is having issues. So,
1: so normally this is going to be, so, I probably shouldn't have used healthy as an example because the 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 difference in the genes for a healthy patient is just drastically different than that of someone with CLL. And so, if you're trying to if if we're trying to answer whether you know like if this patient is resistant, right? We probably want to compare it to somebody who also has CLL but just did better, right? So that way you're kind of evening out the playing field. Um, And then you're only trying to your experimental question is then what is actually being different. Uh, like, like what is different between a relapse patient and someone who was, did not relapse. Um, and, and so, so here's the thing, right? Like going in, you don't know, ex- like you, 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 CLL is a really, um, is a really diverse disease. Um, it used to be like, I, like, I feel like if someone knew what they were talking about, they'll put me under some heat for saying this, but like, so like historically, like your CLLs seem to be what's called like a monoclonal disease, right? There's one type of disease B cell and it's driving the disease. But what I'm seeing in my research nowadays is that, well, that actually differs patient by patient. Some patients actually have a really diverse disease phenotype. Like there are a lot of different B cells um, that may or may not be CLL that is contributing to this uh this this patient's you know like overall well-being and and that kind of and people are only realizing this now because of the advent of like how much you can sequence um so when you're like let's just go back to your example with like 100 cells right let's just say i have 100 cells that i get from a relapse patient 100 cells that i get from um like uh Um, a disease, like someone who did, uh, who did not relapse. Um, So there are two possibilities. One, the relapse patient or the disease uh, or the not relapse patient might have different populations of cells. So if you looked at like one cell compared to the other, they would look really different, right? So that's one possibility. The other possibility is, is that, well, maybe their cells all look alike, but there's only just a couple of key differences between them because it, 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 it takes a lot for a cell to be, you know, like phenotypically really different from, you know, a same type of cell. It takes a lot of genes being modulated. So those are your two possibilities. And, and, and that's what your statistical analysis would try to figure out, right?
0: So it would just try to figure out if there exists some kind of differences. And if so, are these differences significant enough?
1: Right, and, and so this is okay. So, so this is so now we're going to get into like more, more things into your, your wheelhouse. So, the way that you would the, the the current gold standard for parsing out these differences, at least with single cell data, is is machine learning, like classical machine learning techniques. So, you take like you know like we, let's go to the hundred cell example. You you go to your hundred cells. You would combine the hundred cells from your two groups together into one data set. So now you have you're looking at two hundred cells. So each column of like your table is a given cell, each row is a different gene and the numbers are going to be how much of that RNA was being expressed. Makes sense. Um, So what generally what the gold standard is nowadays is to do some sort of clustering or some sort of grouping on these cells. So the first thing that you do is you would take these cells and you put them into a lower dimensionality space because you have two you have a you have a matrix that's basically like ten thousand by 200 at this point right so you would try to you would try your best to look at it in two dimensions after you've done that you would group the cells unsupervised and that would give you groups that you know are different from each other and now that you have these groups then you can run some sort of statistical analysis between groups so through your grouping you might find out that oh yeah there's a huge group of cells that is just totally different from everybody else right and then you're okay so so now you want to ask okay what genes are being like what makes that group so different than everybody else right so you could run uh, you, you can run some statistical analysis where you're looking at um you know that group versus everybody else or you can look or you can like run each group versus each pairwise group comparison right so there's a lot of options
0: so I guess here you're letting, how are you picking the number of groups in two dimensions?
1: Uh, generally it's unsupervised.
0: So it's just, uh, you, you let it do its thing and have some discrimination metric.
1: Correct. Uh, I mean, k-nearest K means does, uh, it still does get used. Uh, and, and that's the, like, but, and generally you would only do that if you know exactly what, like, it's not good for discovery, let's say that.
0: Okay. It's so now, only when
1: you know what you're looking for.
0: Okay. So then you have some group of interest and you hope that that group belongs to, I guess, what do you do with that group of interest? If you can do the, all these pairwise differences and it truly is different enough, do you then have to identify where they initially came from?
1: So, I guess I'm not exactly sure what you mean by initially came from, so.
0: You combined, so you had a hundred from this patient and a hundred from the other patient.
1: Ah, uh, I uh, got it, got it, got it, yeah. Yeah, it's been labeled, the data's been labeled, right. Right. Okay, so, so, so you do know where it comes from.
0: Okay, and then I guess, what, what, what would you expect? What, like in the best case scenario, what, what would you want?
1: The best case scenario is that um not only do your K nearest neighbor na- like or or your clustering algorithm identify, you know, like clusters, right? Well, you know, it always will, but just by the nature of the algorithm. But what you want is like them to be spatially separated to 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 some degree, right? Like you, you want to see clean clusters. Uh, and so what that would imply is that there are truly, you know, a group of genes that is really differentiating um, the groups from each other. Uh, you would get, and then your statistical analysis is really easy, right? You would just run like, let's just say one group versus all the others. And you would get back a list of genes that, uh, the algorithm thinks that is, uh, is actually driving the differences. And, and once you do that, uh, there's a number of other things that you can do, right? You can, you can try to look at how these genes link together to like, like, for example, are these like are these all metabolism-related genes, or are they all receptor-related genes? Um, and if your results are compelling enough, you would coordinate with uh, you would coordinate with the wet lab, and you would try to get these results validated.
0: So, what happens if there isn't enough space between these clusters? What what does that tell you?
1: So, it depends on. It. So, so it, it well. This is also depend. This also depends on the. Type of dimension reduction algorithm that you use, like with, with especially with single cell, most people don't use like a linear, uh, a linear reduction anymore, like PCA. People they they generally use like uh, some like nonlinear transformation where spa- like where spatially the distance doesn't matter too, like it doesn't mean much, but the fact that there is a separation still indicates that your your genes are different. Uh, more often than not, like. You're like the scenario that you just described happens more often than not to sequencing projects. Mostly because um the there could like a, a lot of projects are actually trying to identify really small minute changes between cells. And it, it's hard to tease those things out. It's it's hard to tease it out if you don't have enough data. It's hard to tease it out if um your signal is small.
0: Yeah, so that, that's the thing that was my mind, my mind was going to is what happens if your initial process has too much uh, noise, right?
1: It's it's tough. It happens. It happens a discouraging amount of times where that's the case. Not every time you sequence, you're going to publish a paper off of it. That's just the unfortunate truth.
0: Yeah. Right, but I guess how many times do you have to fail before you stop trying to find some discriminate like discriminatory factor? Right. Because it could always be the case that you have noise. You could always be chasing this like.
1: Well, exactly. Well, let, let, let's just not even talk about sequencing. Like the reason, like the, the reason that you cited is, is, is precisely the, the reason why cancer isn't cured yet. It is that the noise to signal ratio is way too high in, in most cases. And, and the reason I say that is because everybody's cancer is different. And like, I don't, I don't mean to sound corny when I say that. It, it's true. Our biologies are different. Our genomes are different. We all respond to different drugs differently. Like, you know, like forget whether, you know, forget whether someone had cancer or not. Just two people taking the same drug is going to respond differently. <laughs> healthy, healthy baseline, right? Um, and, and so what, what, make, what sequencing data unfortunately does is it makes that really clear. All the ma- mice study that I've been a part of the is clean, it's so clean because these, these mice were all bred together. There's so much incest. They're like all clones of each other. They're all from like one company or from one lab and they've, they've all grown up eating the same food, same amount of food with the same sleep and same schedule, right? These mice are identical to each other. And, and yeah, and, and your results show that. We've cured cancer several times over in mice at this point, you know, to be hyperbolic. But with humans, it's we're too diverse. We live too d- diverse lifestyles with diverse g- genotypes, and it's hard. The signal-to-noise ratio is low.
0: So, he, my mind immediately goes to something like this, and, you, and, and I want to know if if you think this is feasible. Part of your yearly checkup is a collection of a certain population of cells for you as an individual. And that's like those group that get, that's basically I don't know frozen or somehow processed, and then you do that every single year, so that if you do end up ever developing cancer, you would have a reference, and that reference is to yourself, and you kind of eliminate some of this diversity.
1: Yeah, so um, I can totally see that within our lifetimes. So this is this is like kind of the holy grail of precision medicine, right? Is that we sequence your genome enough? And we understand the associ- like and like, you know, and we would understand the associations between how your body would react to treatment and your propensity for a given, you know, for a given disease, right? And we'd be able to spot that way ahead of time or treat it way more effectively because we we just have all these associations. And that's the holy grail. But 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 right now it's still not economically feasible. And it's also right now still not computationally feasible. Mostly because, um, mostly because, right now we're still trying to get a hold. Uh, we're still trying to get a handle on the data that we sequenced so far. I don't think, I don't think that much more healthy donor data would enhance our understanding of each person's biology that much more. Um, and also from a biological standpoint, right? Well, we have your genome, but what do we do with it? it it's hard to know. Well you have this mutation, so you won't respond this well to, I don't know, this over-the-counter truck or something like that. It's hard to make those, those, those distinctions.
0: Well, about- I guess if I can clarify a bit, what I, what I would, would mean to say is, suppose CLL is the thing we're interested in. Uh, you're, you're, you're targeting a particular populations of cells, right? That you, you end up sequencing. And suppose right now, like I'm, I'm healthy, can't you take those cells specifically for me and then, you know, just have that data available and then say later on, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if it happens that I do develop CLL, right. You could compare those, that population that was from me to this new population that is still from me that has this new variation.
1: Right. Um, So one would have to do so, but that wouldn't, the reason why that, like that, so what you've described has been done normally what happens wh- what normally happens is is that um when you when you're designing your experiment right you you generally collect from the same group of patients at different time points and you're doing a time point analysis right like um so in, in, in my case so like, like like an example would be like well i would take like i would i would study 10 patients. And, uh, let's just say all these 10 patients I know have relapsed because I've, I've just been, they've been on this clinical trial, right. That I, I I've been running. And so you would, you would sequ- you know, you collected blood at baseline before they relapsed. Right. And then after they relapse, you collect blood and you would try to compare them again. The reason why you take a group of patients, right. Is because you want to try to make your method applicable mm. to the disease as a whole. And and, and, and yeah. So like how you respond individually might not reflect that of a treatment that will be generally applicable to everybody. And I know we've been talking about, well, you, you want, like, you want to, you like, you know, like the Holy grail of it, right. Is to make a disease plan specific to you. Right. But if we can't even like, if we can't even treat like a, a significant portion of the population with like a given treatment, why start with the minutia first? You want to start for you want to, yeah.
0: I think that's fair, but f- for some reason, my mind just goes to what if that doesn't exist, right? What if it must be that you have to treat this on a case by case basis? Like, do you, do you see that with your, I guess, given your experience as being a real possibility?
1: I could see it. Right. I, I but like, but I think that there are, you know, like in my limited experience, I think there are, you know, like I think there are treatments that will work. I think that like a, only a small number of treatments will actually work for a given disease. So it's not as if we can just like throw, we can just throw, you know, some drug that was intended for some other thing and, you know, just have it immediately be applicable, applicable to your disease. Right. I don't think the the space of possibilities is that large, and I, you know, again, I say this from you know from a place you know that doesn't have as much experience as like you know proper cancer docs do, right? So, one might want to try to find what that space of potential treatments even is first, before trying to find which one will work for this specific person.
0: Right, and uh, I, I find that space to be growing, right. Is, is that accurate to say?
1: It could be, yeah. I mean, well, it, it, it's, I think drugs discovery is going to be very much accelerated in the next couple, couple of years.
0: I guess uh, what kind of stuff exists that leads you to, to think that?
1: Um, or where do you so, see things headed? So there, there are the, 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 okay. This is also a very, that's also a very good question because it, I think it's also, there's a lot of different possibilities for how this can happen. So let me, let me, let me, let me, let me break it down. I, I, I feel like there are two really broad categories that I could break it down into and, and these categories definitely inter like they definitely intermingle with each other. Uh, the first one is going to be machine learning <laughs> And, and the second one is um, immunology. So I guess let me start with the machine learning one first because I can I can at least talk like a, a, on a very broad level for things. Uh, so one thing like one thing that like a lot of people are trying to do is accelerate drug treatment by by implementing like like neural networks to try to predict what class of drugs is going to best fit a given receptor. So let's just say you know exactly what you're trying to inhibit, but you just don't know how to like what molecule is actually going to do the job that you need it to do right and, and that takes discovery and That that takes a lot of trial and error that takes a lot of discovery and it takes a lot of trying things that you like like taking upon like something that you know works and modifying it um and, and that's a really labor-intensive process it, like like i think from i think the statistic right now from discovery to treatment is like the and that's what we call the translational gap right like the, the day we start trying to work on like a given drug and the day that it actually gets FDA approved and implemented is like 10 years that translational gap is 10 years right now freaking crazy um so it's a really labor-intensive process, and, and there's a large part of it waiting for the government to move their feet and, and whatnot. But I mean, like nonetheless, it it, it does, It's very. It, it takes time. And what these neural nets are, you know, the, the the goal of them is is to try to predict, you know, chemical binding, right? Given a class of molecules. Um, and I think even more exciting was, uh, you know, we've been talking about this, right? Is that um, a brand new algorithm came out called alpha fold that will actually predict the protein structure given a set of amino acids, which is an incredibly elusive problem in biophysics and biochemistry. It like arguably one of the holy grails that most people, at least most experts in the field didn't think they'd see in this lifetime. Um, and it wasn't solved, but we are sick with this new alpha fold program, it, it like like we're closer to it than ever before.
0: So I wanna, I wanna stop really quick and try to understand, wh- so I wanna understand what is, what is it trying to achieve? Why is it hard? And why is it the holy grail? Those are the three questions.
1: Well, let me start with why the holy grail, uh, why is it the holy grail first, right? Uh, like like all these receptors and, and things that we've been talking about, all these epigenetic modifications, all these drugs, right? They work, They work as proteins or binding to proteins. And a protein's function is is determined by its shape. So if you could figure out the shape of a protein, you can elucidate a lot of things about its biology, what it interacts with in the body, and how to actually bind to it, right? Which is inherently what all these drugs are really trying to do. Um, And so the only proper way to do this right now is through x-ray crystallography. Basically you, 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 um, you, you isolate, you isolate the protein that you're interested in, you crystallize it and you bombard it with X-rays, see how it diffracts and come up with some 3d structure. for Um, and and that's also a really intensive process and it's hard to purify proteins, it's hard to crystallize. I mean, it doesn't work with some proteins, but it does with others. It's not a perfect process. Um, and yeah, with complicated proteins, it's difficult. So like, so the, so the reason why it's a holy grail is because it, it, like it it would just solve, like it would, it would immediately elucidate the biology of whatever protein or receptor or whatever you're trying to study. Right. It, it, you know, it doesn't give you a result. It doesn't give you a drug, but it helps you along the way by, by quite a fair bit. The reason why it's hard is because um, proteins are made up of building blocks called amino acids and, a lot of these building blocks go into make a functioning protein, hundreds, hundreds of amino acids. These are, you can think of each amino, there are like 22 amino acids that you find in the human body. I think it's 21 or 22, I can't remember. Either way, they, they all differ from each other a little bit, but you can think of them as like tiny magnets. They have tiny magnets and the magnets are kind of in a different shape. All right. And as you're creating this protein, right, you're creating it amino acid by amino acid. And you can imagine that, you know, like if you just like attach a magnet onto the end of another magnet with a different shape, it's going to kind of like bend in a way, way because the poles want to line up, right? And if you keep attaching more and more of these little magnets of different shapes with each other, you're then tasked with, okay, what's the final shape of this gonna be? Right. And that's difficult because not again, like these, these magnets differ in their 3D structure. And um, you have, at the end of the day, like hundreds of magnets. This is like a hundred body problem. Uh, like, at least that's how you would call it in physics, right? Like uh, like a two-body problem is always difficult to solve. A three-body problem is nearly impossible to solve. And now you're, you're wanting to solve a hundred-body problem, which is terribly difficult. So generally what people have done now is, um, Instead of actually going and solving the kinematics and you know like uh, of the actual you know of this you know of this particular system, people will try to construct some like energy function that they then try to minimize. Um, and, and so, but you know these these methods generally don't have don't produce high accuracy for their predictions. Um, AlphaFold is interesting because it, it's it's one of the first successful applications. Well, it's just one of the first successful applications in general. Its accuracy isn't super great. I think it's like seventy-ish percent or something like that. I should probably go back into the paper and look at it. But it—it's it, a huge jump, uh, and basically, it uses a neural net to try to predict the shape of these structures, um, and so it's—it's it's really uh, kind of like a first in its class.
0: So I guess one—one one of the reasons. Well, I guess one of the things that you could do with this is say, I need this particular structure and then could you figure out which amino acids you need in which particular sequence? Yeah. Is that the idea?
1: You, you, you could do that. You could do that.
0: You so do I that. guess, uh, how, how does it play into the sort of drug delivery process? Like how would you, how, I guess you said it's, it's a, it's a tool along the way. How, how might it, I guess, how might some, you know, budding pharmaceutical company use this as a tool?
1: Right, so uh, the, the, the other difficult half to this problem, right, is to figure out what, mol- so like the way that biological molecules interact is kind of like, um, I'm oversimplifying this quite a bit, but it's kind of like a lock and key mechanism. Like proteins will only interact with things that fit, it's like, it fit its shape, right? And generally all the receptors and all the things in your body are made up of proteins. Uh, or, or well, that's not true. But, but, but I think you get what I mean. Like the things that your proteins would interact with, generally, like uh, it, it, and like the receptors and like different structures, the different structures in your cells, they're generally proteins. And so, understanding how these things fit together is pretty important to figure out what drug to use, right? Your drug, you want your drug to be this right shape to fit into this protein to stop it from doing something, or to accelerate it in doing something. Um. And so you would need to know, right? You would need to be able to model how these things fit together. And that's not a trivial problem, right? If you have some complex three dimensional structure and you need to figure out what is the corresponding complex three dimensional structure I need for it, for them to be you know, connected, to, to, for them to be attracted in a very particular array, way, right? That's also not, not a trivial problem. So, but if you know, if you can generate the shapes, right that's a big start if you can generate the lock that's that all you need is the key
0: that's pretty insane i gotta say right because then you could also i mean you could presumably just try you could literally exhaust the options say i want i have this particular lock of interest let me just try to make a bunch of keys
1: yeah exactly and, and you have yeah
0: exactly so uh i guess something that's kind of unclear to me is you have this sequence you have this rna sequence right and that's the thing that eventually gets converted into these amino acids and they become proteins somehow is what determines the shape just the sequence right that that emerges from specifically the 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 order
1: so, so, so uh, of course, uh, uh, of course, with like on the scale of molecules, right? Like things like heat, and you know, like te- like temperature and pH really matter. But in the biological human body, right, in vivo, at like pH of like seven and uh, body temperature of like you know ninety-eight degrees Celsius, your protein, yeah, given an amino acid sequence that you that you that you assemble from start to finish sequentially, right, it's going to fold a certain way. It's going to fold that way all the time.
0: Wow. And and I guess, uh, suppo- I mean, this this is like a very crude picture in my head. You just have a, a batch full of ribosomes in a plate and you could feed them these little RNA strings and they would generate these proteins for you.
1: Yeah, basically. That's what your cells do.
0: And now you just have a vial of this proper protein. Wow, that's, that's nuts. That's
1: actually nuts dude yeah it's it's crazy it's crazy i like I, I get caught in the minutia of like the computation but like biologically it's absolutely crazy that this just happens millions of times over per second in, in your body
0: so i, I want to i think the competition was called casp or cas or something that yeah really casp. was it, it was when AlphaFold succeeded and i want to know what kind of impact is that going to have on your work
1: if any so that's, that's a, that's a great question. So the, the current work that I'm doing right now, I don't see a foreseeable, honestly, I don't see a foreseeable impact of alpha in any research until maybe another decade or two in, because again, it's not perfect. Um, biologists also have a, have a record of doubting computation. Uh, and, and so like that disconnect is also real and I, I don't blame them. Uh, I think that healthy skepticism is, is definitely not to blame. Right. Because um it, it computation definitely hasn't been tried and true as like the gold standards for like so for some of the wet lab methods and you know generally what you can see and what you can feel and touch right is is, is a little bit more reliable than like this like weird prediction algorithm that only gets things right some of the time so i don't see it i don't see it you know in, like revolutionizing research anytime soon what this really does is set a precedent for hey this problem can be solved this way. <laughs> um, and that's the exciting part. So I can speculate as to, as to what it will do to the future of my research. So if I had my way, I would be delving into, so so let, let, let me take a step back. Let's, let's talk about the second, the second portion of um, the second portion of what I wanted to talk about immunology. So immunology is really the study of your immune system. And especially in the context, in the present context, it's how to leverage your immune system to fight off various diseases and even cancer. So the way that I can, so one of the difficult things, one of the, one of the most difficult things that, uh, that immunology faces, right. Is that Each of your, each of your immune cells that like biologically react or, um, or recognize some given foreign object, let's call that an antigen, right? It has a very unique receptor and that receptor differs cell by cell. And let's just say, like, I see, I see a given antigen that I want to attack or signal my body to protect against. Right? I'll make more of myself. I'll clone myself to have like a bunch of cells with the same receptor. Right? And I'll, 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 I'll either like atta- like produce, I'll either produce antibodies to attack this foreign invader, or I'll like down, I'll signal, I'll signal the rest of my immune system to take some sort of action. Right? And so, you know, like. Like generally speaking, right, you know, um, each of the, like each of the cells in your immune system that does something has a unique receptor for the things, for the thing that it, it recognizes. Um, It's not obvious as to given a T cell or a B cell or, you know, something with that receptor that I sequence, right? It's, I don't know what that receptor is specific for just based off of the sequencing information, right? You would have to validate it in the lab. But since every day your body is exposed to a ton of foreign invaders all the time, your body has built up this huge repertoire of unique receptors that it can that, that it can use to fight off various diseases. That's how that's how our um, immune system works. And so it's not it, you, you. It's you can't tell just based off of some sequencing data. If you sequence, let's just say a B cell, right? I can't tell you what this B cell attacks. But it would be. If you could, if you could get like, but if I could, you know, like if I could model the protein that this receptor makes and also be able to identify what key fits into that lock, that could have huge implications on how I can leverage your immune system to fight different cancers. For example, if I know, like, let's just say like, God forbid you get cancer, right? And I know exactly what to, like uh, what what to look for in this cancer to, to kill it. Let's just say I look for some surface receptor. That's pretty ubiquitous, right? But your body just simply can't produce cells that fight that atta- attach that receptor and kill the cancer cell. I can extract the T cells out of your body, and I can engineer. If I knew the thing that I need to, if I knew the like the shape of the receptor I was going for, I could engineer your T cells to have the shape of that receptor. Then inject it back into you. And techniques like that are, you know, that, that's not science fiction. Techniques like that are actually being used today. The only difference is, is that the receptors that are injected back into you aren't necessarily hyper-specific to that one thing. They're just generally auto uh, autoimmune reactive.
0: Right. So that, that, I mean, that's what I was going to get to is what if that receptor is specific to this population of cells, but it also happens to exist on some other cells that are doing good for you? Is that- right.
1: Yeah. So, so that's a difficult thing with like immune treatments nowadays. Like I I can leverage, you you hit the nail on the head. I can leverage your immune system to, um, to attack a certain thing, but it also might have off target effects because you're, you're just kind of increasing the sensitivity of your immune system. But, but again, if I, if I like, if I sequence, you know, all your, all your T, T and B cells, right. And then I, and I eliminate the things that your body is reactive towards and only make it specific to the thing that I want it to react to, you could do that if you could have granular control of the protein that it it creates, right? And that also kind of goes into understanding the shape and what what type of protein a given amino acid structure will give you. So that's like how I would tie all that stuff together.
0: I see. So you're marrying the two concepts and now you have this really effective way to treat. I mean, at a granular level, granular level cancer. Right.
1: Yeah. I'm not injecting you with any drugs. I'm just, no. I'm, I'm just taking your own immune cells and I'm having them attack the cancer.
0: So yeah. when, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no. So, so all I was, was going to say is that, you know, this is already like, like, again, this sounds like science fiction, but this is happening in your body as we speak like we all have some number of cancer cells that just pop up just due to random chance because of, you know, like some weird breakage in our genetic code or some mis- miscommunication between, you know, like our DNA and our, you know, and, and the, the machinery that generates proteins. So this happens all the time and your immune system is good enough to detect those cancer cells and to purge them. That's why we don't, we're not walking tumors. The problem is, is that when a, a given cancer cell accumulates the, the right mutations to either evade the immune system or to dampen the immune system, and that's when you have, and that's when you get like you know like you know actual actual cancer that you would need to go to the hospital to treat.
0: Right, I guess the the caveat to me would be, you you need fine, very fine granular control or details to be able Correct.
1: to do. Yes,
0: is is it? Does I guess. Is signal-to-noise going to always be the underlying issue at that point? Even if you have the technology possible to create these perfect proteins,
1: right? Well, let's just like, you know, th- that's kind of the beauty with sequencing. Like overall signals and noise, th- th- there's an issue with that. But there's a high degree of accuracy, there's a high degree of confidence for like, if I sequence a given thing, there's a high degree of confidence for each base pair in the thing I sequence. Like there's like, you know, because I sequence that like hundreds of thousands of times over. Mm. And, 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 so at that point, the noise signal, the signals noise ratio is actually really, really high. So like sequence level content, like, like telling you what the a, C, T's, and Gs are. That's like, that's actually really solid. I can tell you exactly that. I can sequence your genome to high accuracy, right? Like, you know the the number like you know like you know now if we're talking about expression right we are th- that that signal noise ratio is really in terms of the expression right how like you know like so i do know you know so like for every sequence i have a high degree of accuracy in the acts and g's but do i have a high degree of accuracy in the number of sequences that i i report back to you that's a little trick because like we've talked about with the amplification the epigenetic modifications that that gets a little tricky but the sequence level information, there's no ambiguity. And so I can tell you, like, for example, like a given like immune receptors, like sequence with very high confidence.
0: Hmm. So I guess that really eliminates that problem, right? I guess the fact that you're doing it over and over again, and you have so many references for the same sequence. (laughs) Yes. Wow. I guess what, what are the biggest hurdles that you think are in the way of that type of treatment from becoming a reality in the next however many years
1: yeah so uh let me i feel like we've you know like i feel like i've thrown around like a lot of vague science terminology so let's step back a bit and go to something a little bit more bureaucratic in nature and and, and that's um like this idea of like silos of research. And so even though the cancer world is generally pretty collaborative nowadays, it's still, people are still very protective of their intellectual property. Um, and, and, and that can lead to, that, that leads to a lot of issues. Like um, there, there's a whole problem in, re, in biological research in general in terms of reproducibility. There's a large problem in terms of people being, you know, totally honest with their research. There's a, there's a problem with people, you know, fudging their results with statistics, right? And of course, there's also problems with funding. You know, like if you don't get the, st- the statistics, you, you can design the perfect experiment, but you don't have, if you don't have the money, then it's all for naught. Um, so there's a lot of problems. Um, and and I think that with, I think that with time. This is getting better and better. Uh, like there are like, you know, like this is nothing new, but you know, there are more and more publicly publicly available sequencing type data online than than there ever has been, and most of the code that people use for statistical analysis, they're generally open source because you know they have to publish, right? So in that sense, it it's it's not as if it like it's not as if like, you know, a newcomer can't come into the field and never understand what's going on, but there, there's so much to know. There's so much to know. And at this point with, 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 you know, with, with medical research, we're really trying to get into the minutia for how this works. You know, people like, you know, sequencing is relatively new, but it's not that new. Most of the big obvious experiments people have done before. Right. And even still, cancer has been cured. So it's really at this point, it's really at this point trying to under, like trying to tease out the specific fine granular details, how diseases differ from each other that, that that's really trying to happen. And I, I'm not sure exactly how I'm not exactly sure how fast you know progress, in, in curing cancer as a whole is going to be made in the next you know 100 years right i mean i can see us making huge progress but i don't know if it's going to be cured uh,
0: so that that's like, that's like the the dose of reality i think i needed right there I, I think it's it's a combination of this and something that you said to me a, a little bit earlier that kind of sticks out which is there's a bit of resistance to accepting these computational methods as the gold standard. And if they ever might be the gold standard, right. You're still going to do X-ray crystallography to determine the structure of a protein right. as a validation step, even if you're using something like alpha fold.
1: Yeah. I, and I think as you should, right. I mean, I, like these are not perfect methods and uh, and, and that's the truth of it. There's so many things that could be go, uh, that could go wrong. And you always want to like, I feel like with any type of you know, science you want to do, you always want to make sure you always want to triple check your, your results. Right. So I, I don't, I don't think that's, you know, that's inherently a problem, but you know, if your if your computational analysis comes up with something and your what lab doesn't verify it, that's just it, you know, it, it just doesn't work. It's not like, you know, like, like in the, in the case of like resistant CLL, right? Like the example that I gave you, that's like not a complex problem to understand in terms of like, oh yeah, there's a set of resistant patients and there's a set of people who are not resistant. We could probably sequence people's data and just compare them and whatever differences should be what's driving the disease. That's not a complex question. But the reason why people are still dying from CLL is because that question hasn't been answered and it's because everybody's disease is so different it's so different and everybody's individual biology is so different and the disease course is different so it's it's hard to it's hard to make meaningful progress it, it, it really is and, and right now I think there's you know I think computation and from the what lab perspective both sides have made huge contributions right and it's not to say computations like, you know, not important because of you know, if you can't, you know, like, is that it never, like, it never discovers anything that's true. That's that's not the case. It's it's just that everybody's different. That's that's the problem.
0: Right. I think something I want to talk a little bit more about as well is this sort of dance between computational uh, resources and and wet lab resources. Right. They seem to be playing into each other. Right. You can validate your your uh, computational results with wet lab results, right? And if that doesn't happen, then your computational results don't mean anything. And then you can try to look for something in the wet lab based on some computational results, right? There, there's this sort of interplay. But uh, I guess, do you see it getting to the point where computation, like the, the, the realm of computation surpasses what is currently physically possible with the wet lab to validate? Well, and then what do you do at that point?
1: So that's, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I'm not sure actually, I I mean, like I, even though I do computation, it's hard for me to imagine that I like, I hit a button and it returns to me like, like an actual valid result still kind of baffles my mind because there's so much, so much of the work I do is really like, like making sure that. I've done my due diligence in making sure that the statistics I've done is correct and the, and the comparisons I've done is legit. There's so much, uh, and, and, and even when I have a, a list of genes, that I'm confident that is, you know, like actually being modulated in the data. I'm not usually that confident that it, these are things that are truly happening biologically. And, and, and so like, unfortunately most of the papers I've been a part of, have been on my part like have been like confirmatory studies so like the the, like at least successful papers that i've been a part of right that's not to say all success all successful papers follow this but just the the limited few that i've been a part of is that the the lab will do something uh the the wet lab will do something and get like you know find some interesting phenomenon they'll they'll do their whole uh, they'll do their whole study on it and then they'll come to us and be like, Hey, can you validate this for us? Can you make sure that this comes up in the sequencing data?" and you know, luckily it, done, it did for the couple of papers that I was a part of, but, um, it, 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 you generally have to have a really high degree of confidence before when you go to a wet lab, like you, you generate something computationally. And then you go to a wet lab person and say, Hey, I want you to test these genes because te- like you have tens of thousands of genes that you can test. Right. But in reality, the wet lab can only test like maybe a dozen at a time because of just the manpower it takes. So you can't test, you can't validate every, every, every gene in the book. Um, and then you also have to have a hypothesis for why this gene is going to be biologically important to your, to the disease that you're studying. You might get a lot of genes that differ, but they might not be, for example, CLL related, which has happened to me before. Um, and so that, that, I mean, that, that's another bridge you have to cross, right? You, then you have to ask yourself, well, why am I getting genes that don't seem to inherently be related to the disease at all? And, and, and so you go, you know, like, like, you know, during this entire time, you're collaborating with, you know, your, your physician scientists, you're, you're getting, you know, like you're getting second, you're, you're getting like a different, uh, you're getting like another computational collaborator to get a look at your data, make sure you're not going crazy and things like that. And all of a sudden, you know, a year or two goes by, right? <laughs> so it, it's, it, it's, um, I wouldn't say that sequence, I wouldn't say that it's discouraging, but I think it's important to be realistic for, you know, like, I think, it's, I think it's incredibly important to be realistic for how much your data can actually elucidate for you, especially with a lot of the caveats that we have talked about.
0: Yeah, I think it's very fascinating because with computation, you can take a very combinatorial approach and just try a bunch of things. And yeah. even if it's the order of days, you're fine because it's not real manpower. But right. with, with wet lab, you're, you're restricted to say, you said 12 samples for, for example, right? I wanna, I guess what I would really want to know is, is there a way to, to make that 12 into 1200, right? Are there kind of, are, are there innovations that exist that can kind of bring this, the wet lab up to speed even approximately with, with the computational capabilities, because that's the rate limiting step, right? If I can't, if I have to have a 99.9999% degree of certainty as a computational scientist to bring you something at the wet lab and say, test this, that is, I think millions of samples that never go tested because they're not at that level of, of certainty. Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, it's, it's difficult. So the reason why sequencing, I mean, like, I mean, the reason why what you just described isn't a thing, and sequencing is a thing is that each, each, like each protocol is different. Each protocol is different. Each disease is different. There might be different steps that you need to do to prepare a particular sample to even be ready to validate. There's a limited number of patient samples. It's not ethical to like drain this cancer patient of all the blood they have in their body and run unlimited tests on this particular person or in this particular cohort. Uh, depending on the disease, their cells might be rare. And even if their cells aren't rare, again, you don't want to drain like a whole gallon of, of their blood or you know cut out their entire kidney to 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 do this. So you will have infinite. You do have infinite input material. That's that's one. And, and, and again, too, I just want to stress, like. Each disease and each lab and each protocol is different. You have to prepare each sample separately. You have to like, you know, like you have to purify them. You have to clean them up. You have to make sure that you have, you know, you, 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 you got to make sure that you're able to even like capture the protein that you're looking for, or, you know, like there's so many considerations and it's, and it's really like each, like, each like manual assay you have to do is so customized that it I can't imagine it ever being scalable.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the rub. I think, uh, the fact that most of these things are very unique and not scalable, it really, I mean, it it becomes the rate limiting step. Uh, like one example that I think of sometimes is PCR. Uh, you have PCR machines, so you don't have to sit there monitoring a thermometer. right? right? I I wonder if there's a push towards not unification of assays, but automation of of assays. Right to really be careful with your input material because that's not something I thought about before.
1: Right, yeah, yeah. So I mean, like, I don't know too, again, I don't like, like, I don't, I generally don't work with assays too much, right? But normally they're in like well plates, right? They're, They're in plates with like little wells in them and they have whatever you're looking for. And then you have to go in with your little pipette and you have to pipette things into each of them. And you know, like whatever, like you get some sort of signal like, you know, like either something fluoresces or something doesn't, right? But that's like, at that point, that's just sequencing. It's, it, that's a low throughput sequencing effectively. It, it, yeah.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, it, it, I think from, for, for this, this is one of those cases where it's really, it's really exciting. You look at the sexy thing, which is machine learning, these new types of immunology, alpha fold. But then the real sort of bottleneck, is this really mundane thing, well, in in my opinion, I'm sure, no, 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 no hate on wet lab scientists, but I feel like the real innovations need to happen at this very core level where I need to give these scientists better physical tools, right, to work with so that their throughput can be, you know, 2x, 3x.
1: Right, yeah, 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 that, 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 that's the, that's, that's, that's the difficulty. That's the difficulty. Right. I mean, like, like at the end of the day, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, like it, 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 like if if it doesn't work on a patient, right. It like, well, I guess you would never even get to the patient step. Right. But if it doesn't work like on like the actual cell, then it's never going to work on the patient. That's fair. Yeah. And that's a reason why for like, like, you know, like people talk about the incredible speed that like the coronavirus vaccine, was, was uh, like, is being developed and, and, and truly it's remarkable. But like, here's the thing with the like, here's the thing with like the specific current Like, So, so actually, actually let's talk about this because like, I think it goes a, a long way to illustrate how difficult this process truly is, okay? Because I, I, yeah, I think it's a really good and relevant way to, 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 to say it. Okay, so the coronavirus vaccine is, I'm sure that like everybody knows at this point is, is an mRNA vaccine. What that means is that your SARS-CoV-2 is an RNA virus. And in the virus, it contains its genetic information in the form of RNA, right? So what this virus will do is it will, it will go into your body, and latch, it, latch itself onto a given cell via a spike protein that they call, like, I believe it's called ACE2, right? Um, and it will insert its genetic material into your cell And then it will hijack the machinery to reproduce itself instead of your own cell's DNA or RNA. And it will explode out of your cell and continue on and perpetuate the cycle. right? So what an mRNA vaccine tries to do is that it tries to present your immune system with a piece of the virus's mRNA in an effort to get your cells to recognize that particular mRNA produce the, the immune cells that, with, the, with the correct receptors, like we've talked about, right? Uh, produce the immune cells with the correct ex- receptors to be activated by the mRNA, and so that your immune system can in and of itself mount some sort of response. So that's the goal. So how does one actually go about doing this? So the first thing that one needs to consider is, the, for, uh, is gonna be the carrier. You can't just inject somebody with mRNA and have it have your their immune system expect to do something okay so one one difficult so one thing that you have to do is you have to have some sort of way to transport um to, to intentionally transport the mRNA to your cells in a, in a in some sort of meaningful way and so people like so a part of you know again this is proprietary to each company but each company has their own version of like Basically, uh, a nanoparticle, a nanoparticle made out made out of fat, that they use to transport. Right, and getting this nanoparticle right is important because getting uh, you know, uh, different nanoparticles will will elicit different levels of immune response just in and of themselves. So that that's one thing that the companies needs to get right, um, and consider how many times they need to test this. The second thing is okay. Well, out of like, it's. It's not important. Like, it's actually infeasible to um, have the whole, like give the immune system the whole viral mRNA. The reason for that is because the mRNA in like uh, like in, when when it, when it gets into your body, it's broken up quite a bit. Um, and and when your immune system like recognizes the mRNA, it doesn't recognize the whole mRNA. It recognizes a very specific region on the mRNA. So the, I believe the viral protein is like, I can't remember how long it is, but I believe it's like tens of thousands of base pairs long, but your immune system probably only recognizes maybe 50 base pairs on it. So now it's a question of which 50 base pairs do you give it, right? It turns out that it's the portion relating to the spike protein, right? But even within the spike protein, which combination, like, like, like which particular section do you even begin to give it, right, to, to make sure it amounts, like uh, uh, mounts this pr- uh, the particular response that you want it to, right? So you can imagine that already just within those two facets, there's a huge amount of experimentation that you actually need to be able to do to get this right. And then of course, you need to have it pass through trials and make sure it doesn't, it, it's not toxic to people. And people's immune system will actually mount a response to to the thing that you give it, right? So, it, so like, and so that's why it's incredible it's only been less than a year and they're already where they are um so to go to bring our to bring our conversation back into this right you could have this could have been done in a matter of days if you if you could model specifically what piece of the mrna you would need right to 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 for, for your for your um for your receptors to to do this right uh and, and and so if you knew the actual like protein or the thing that your cells were reactive to you could instantly make this vaccine and, and that's what that's kind of the power of like these like you know like that, that that's why the potential of this like these alpha folds or these neural nets are so incredible right because they would be able to reveal to you that structure immediately
0: yeah that seems super compelling because now you can just go from this little dish in my mind it's always character it's a caricature of a petri dish with these little viral boys inside of them and then what you throw your cells in and see which ones they respond to and then you're able to amplify that specific one
1: yeah
0: and it's interesting because i i I didn't read too deeply about it but one of the proteins that they modeled was the spike protein on sars cov 2 right and they were able to do it successfully supposedly
1: yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. The al- yeah. full yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't think it was the spike protein, but it was uh, it, it was a COVID related protein. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, yeah. that, that really is one of those glimmers of hope because even if this bureaucratic process exists, you can still take what would have taken, what would have been, I don't know, presumably hundreds, if not thousands, maybe even more man hours and turn it into this very directed process yeah when, totally when there is an emergency
1: totally yeah yeah it, 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 yeah so i mean like the future is bright but truly we are still a long ways from the future
0: yeah and i think but there are
1: glimmers like, of hope yeah
0: there really are because i mean one of the one of the interesting applications that they, they post i think even on the paper in nature was that they're going to use this to manufacture some kind of protein that is going to take care of the trash the trash problem right they're gonna use it to uh eat away waste or something
1: yeah because uh, yeah you could engineer bacteria to to do exactly what you wanted to do right i, I don't think i got to that particular part of the paper but
0: yeah I mean, I, it was just i was just seeing like you know what are very interesting applications of this the, the ones that they're going to focus on first i believe are disease which right they should. And then this is the one where they maybe manufacture some kind of protein that bacteria is used to degrade waste that is otherwise just sitting there. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think it's interesting how we're going from all of these sort of manufactured approaches, right? So like, let's take this chemical and put it, like introduce it somehow into the body and going to, okay, let's see what your body already has and see if we can just help it out a little bit.
1: Yes, yes.
0: It seems quite compelling yeah. because you're, you, I mean, you're leveraging millions of years of evolution and the structures that already exist within you.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's powerful. It's powerful. It, like, it, yeah, it, it's, it's incredible how sophisticated the immune system is. And, ju- and, and, and we're just starting to understand how all these things work.
0: So with your, given your, your new push into into formalizing data science, machine learning, you know, this whole the whole I guess this whole area of computation, do you do you see yourself staying in genomics?
1: I think that genomics right now is incredibly exciting. Um, the, the problems that are being posed are really tough, you know, like besides all the ones that we've talked about, right? Like I, I think I'd also be remiss in saying. I think I don't, I didn't fully answer your question as to why, you know, like just given like, uh, one patient, like, you know, like like your time point example, right. When you're asking, okay, well, if I just sequence myself at like a given, like a a time point one, and then I sequence myself, you know, after cancer and see what's being changed. Right. How, how do I, how do I make things happen? Right. Um, I think one huge thing I was totally remiss in not talking about was that, Cancer also doesn't exist in isolation. It's not just that cell that's contributing to the cancer. Um, your cancer cells have a profound interaction with all the cells around it. Um, and this is what's collectively called the uh, tumor microenvironment, environment, right? Uh, it's, you know, your cancer suppressing your immune cells. Uh, your immune cells are then, you know, going out and being directed to do things, you know, other things. Uh, it, like, you know, there's like, there's you know like there's an interaction with like how it metastasizes right and how it circulates you know how it circulates through the body uh, via your bloodstream. Um, there's a whole process for you know like how your microbiome <laughs> plays into your cancer right So cancer is not one-dimensional. Cancer is not one-dimensional. And, but that's the exciting part about it right The, the exciting part is is that, Something that can handle multi-dimensional data is machine learning algorithms, and you know, and, and you you definitely know more about this than I do. But you know, all, although they're still not perfect, there's still a lot of there's still a lot of hope and a lot of interesting results that that can be gained from it, and and hopefully through the intentional application of of these you know deep neural nets or you know and things like that to uh, to these complex biological problems, one can, one can elucidate some, some some level of result from it.
0: Yeah, so that, that brings very, I guess, a couple points to mind. The first one is, you, you correct me in, in my interpretation, but can- cancer, right, it's, there's no single point of failure for the, in, 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 in scope of the cancer, right? It's not like you can kill right. one thing and the cancer is gone. The whole right. effort is to become this decentralized attack on the body. Yes. And that's, that's what makes it difficult. And what you aim to do then is to incorporate as many dimensions as possible to figure out what those other points of failure are.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: And I guess the the question becomes, is there a point at which there are too many degrees of freedom that you're just, you, you don't know what to do, right? What if this I mean, this cancer is changing your entire sort of micro environment, the the environment inside of you. At what point do you need to like uh, attack each different facet of what it's what it's what it's doing to the point where you actually can hope to have an effective response?
1: So I I I don't think I'm qualified to answer this because I, again I'm not a cancer bi, like I'm I'm not a cancer like I'm not a cancer biologist so it, it's it's hard for me to really know the limits of what we can do w- 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 with w- with these types of therapies I'm i mainly just I'm mainly just kind of like um, expounding upon you know some of the research that I've been a part of and you know generally what like the hopes in my field are right as to what the practical limitations of Let's just say knowing exactly how to you know, like at, like at what you know what like what is the limiting case, right? I don't know. I I I I I don't know.
0: That's don't fair. Know yeah, it's just one of those cases where that 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 in my mind is interesting because presumably these high-dimensional methods of incorporating all of these different factors can give you an indication that okay, here are the parts that are being attacked. We have we have a kind of, kind of a schematic. It's not just one single point of failure. But then what can we practically hope to do with that information right so i think that that educates in that, in that way i guess computation educates the field of biology
1: yeah absolutely absolutely um, it, like there's you know like beyond, beyond like beyond just like you know bioinformatics right i mean there's a whole field called systems biology that's really trying to understand how you know how all these systems Inter- interlink with each other, and they are into some nasty, nasty graph theory that, that I, I'm not familiar with. But I mean, there there are multiple efforts. It, like computation doesn't just involve genomics. Um, it, 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 like there are a lot of incredible mathematicians and physicists um, and statisticians working on um, different facets of of these problems.
0: So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna change directions here, real quick, and say, you know, how how you get interested in this?
1: Yeah, so yeah so that's that's kind of interesting right so uh, so back back uh, uh, back in undergrad um, well I, I guess before undergrad I I had always thought that I wanted to uh, be, be become like some sort of some sort of physician so I, I went to, I went I went went to school you know being pre-med thinking that you know I wanted to go to med school and everything um, I, I think one of the best things I ever did was also decide to to uh, take physics, uh, as a, as a major, which gave me a lot, much more, you know, quantitative background. Uh, but what ended up happening, you know, through, through, you know, trials and tribulations and things like that, uh, you know, I decided, you know, not to end up, not to go to med school or more accurately, I kind of missed my window to go to med school. Um, and so I decided to, uh, con- so, and I decided to continue my research, and, and the way and the way that I got into my research was, you know, since I was interested in medicine and since I was interested in physics, you know, I, I thought like the best thing that I would I could go get into research was something that kind of married the two, something that was in between computation and in biology, so that that kind of best you know leverage my uh, leverage my you know education, and so uh, um, a classmate and a, and a friend, uh, you know. Recommended me that I you know join his lab, and and you know I, I've been there ever since so far. So I just decided to continue with my research there. Uh, and, and but but you know again like we've been talking like talking about it, it seems as if you know everything is moving towards you know uh, you know artificial intelligence and machine learning. And so you know like I'll be starting a school for that, um, a, a graduate program there soon. Oh, uh, in the field soon. So we'll, we'll see how that goes.
0: It's man, it's it's interesting because first off, you know, you never know where you end up, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the problems that you're working on, your research projects, the field of biology, in specific, it, it just inherently is such a complicated problem because of biodiversity, because of complex interactions, because of intractable systems of interactions happening. It, it, it's all very messy, but it works, right? Yeah. I guess, how do you, how do you deal with that as, as, as like, you know, on, on the day-to-day in terms of your research being something that's super complicated? You have, you have to like sort of abstract yourself away at this level where you can do aggregate statistics but but somehow you you have to be okay with knowing that there is this underlying variability that makes things kind of messy
1: right so it's i don't think it's ever i don't think it's ever comforting uh, and the way that and the way that a lot of these so like you know I've talked about that with one like one of the at least with at least with RNA data right one of, one of the main goals is to understand, okay, if I sequence one sample, how does it differ from another one, right? And, and how do I make sure it's statistically significant, right? So, so inherently what that question is asking is, what is your expected noise, right? What was your expected signals noise ratio, right? And so inherently, you know, like what all these classical algorithms try to do is try to model what your dispersion of your, of, of your data looks like, right? Um, you know, like it could be a simple, you know, like, you know, like, uh, I guess a simple example could be like a t-test, right? A t-test is just looking about at how far apart are two, you know, bell curves. Right. And if they're far enough apart where the tails don't overlap too much, then you can say that, oh yeah, those two distributions couldn't have just come about by random chance. Right. But in this case, you know, the, this, the, the noise isn't necessarily a nice little bell curve. Um, you have to make some assumptions about the type of data right and, and, and it's, it's taken some pretty incredible statisticians to come out come up with you know pretty clever but you know at, at the heart of it relatively simple solutions to these things and they're kind of used as the gold standard right like one of like literally like one of the most like well-cited rna seq algorithms to differentiate between counts between two samples right is is something that models the dispersion as um like basically a Poisson distribution and models the change, like the change between one sample to the other as a a linear regression of a, of a logarithm. It's a a log linear regression, basically. And, And, and although that, that might like to some that might sound complicated to others that might sound, you know, trivial, but, but nonetheless, that's like, that's like a lot of what I use on the daily. And it works. <laughs> I, I, it, it, uh, it, and, and it works in the sense that you know you can obviously go back to your data and see that and see by eye. Yeah, well, of course this is significant, right? Um, well, not of course, but you, you can see. Um, and, and so I mean, like inherently there is some uncomfort in these classical algorithms because indeed they like you know when you're looking at single cell data or when you're looking at you know you know like limited samples. It's, it's hard to tell. It's, it's hard to tell whether the, the thing that you're getting is, is truly, it, you know, is truly what's driving the biology or not, right? But, um, a, a part of it is that, you know, like, no one, like, very few people, you know, I feel like people who are well-established in the field of biology, right, PIs with a lot of experience, they never come to us with sequencing data, expecting us to give them a list of genes that will precisely determine exactly what is being you know, like, like, you know, like, like you know, it, that is precisely the solution that, uh, that will cure, you know, whatever they're looking for. Right. It's generally, it's generally an idea of, let me, let me like, let me, let me limit the space of possibilities and identify a family of genes or a set of genes that might be doing something. So that way I can better be informed by the thing that I'm trying to be, that I'm trying to study by.
0: Right. So So, really that limiting process that makes you, that gives you comfort, right? Right. It's that, Hey, there's actual reason classically based reasons to believe that these are going to be important. And let me just look through and figure out, if these trends exist, right? Yeah. To me, that's just very unnerving, right? Because even with statistical tests, it's there. There is some arbitrary value that is, I and mean, it can be really small. It could be six sigma or something, right? There's some arbitrarily small value that says even if I'm looking at this and it looks significant, it might not be.
1: Yeah. yeah right? Exactly. It's, yeah. So that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh... And, and yeah, and, and that's, yeah, it, it, right. So, you know, like once you get like, once you get like some sort of p value or something like that, right? Like, I mean, like, it's also crazy to think about this. So, uh, let me say this in, in the field of biology, it, uh, it wasn't until like maybe 15, 20, like around 15, 20 years ago, ago, when like it was like people started to do multiple, like multiple test corrections. And so let me explain what I mean by that. So like, let's just say you find out a gene is significant and generally in like biology, something that's significant is that is if, if, if the P value is equal to 0.05 and all, all that means is that there's a 5% chance that the thing that you see is just due to random chance, which is relatively low. Right. But with high throughput sequencing, right. you're, 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 you're profiling tens of thousands of genes. And so like. Let's just say you profile ten thousand genes. Then, if your if your p value cutoff is five percent, then you're expecting to see five hundred genes that you label as significant, not being significant. And that's huge. That's five hundred. That's five hundred genes.
0: Can I pause and, you really quick there and yeah. say, is five hundred genes enough to change something drastically?
1: Oh, totally, totally, no doubt. No, continue yeah, no continue
0: doubt. with what you're saying then.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's huge. And so it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't until recently, again, in the past, like 15, 20 years where people started to do another, like adjusting these P values, right? Adjusting these, like these values to account for the fact that, oh, Hey, I just did like like 10,000 tests. I just did, I just made 10,000 P values. Like, let me adjust these, like after the fact to make sure that they reflect the fact that I just did a ton of, like, I just did a ton of tests and I still want to see like things that are probably five percent like you know like you know like statistically significant um yeah
0: it would just seem like if you're working with large numbers five percent is very significant it is right so you you find that even just that number alone is unnerving why can't it be 0.005 0.00005
1: so yeah, so, so yeah, so that cutoff is again just restricting the space of possibilities that, like, you know, what what could possibly be happening. And of course, there's always false positives and false negatives. There's always false negatives, right? I mean, like, like I'm not going to even try to uh, cover that. But 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 again, you're restricting the space of possibilities. Um, and, and then uh, and on top of that, right? Like, there, like like you've like like you've pointed out, right? Your your cutoff doesn't have to be 0.05. You can choose to look at the things that are, you know, like, six sigma significant, right, or, or not, sorry, not six sigma, but like three or four sigma significant, right, and, and really try to, like, you know, um, and, and really try to, like, identify those genes. Uh, another thing here is is that um, remember this amplification problem that I was talking about, right, that maybe, like, you know, sometimes that, like, you might not be able to sequence, uh, like, you could have dropout because either your amplification, you know, didn't get it, or something might be over amplified, right? You could also decide to look at. You could also decide to get excited about genes that are kind of like have medium level expression. Something that you know was kind of like uh, something that you know was like abundant enough to get sequenced quite a bit, but also not so high that you're afraid that it there's like rampant. You know amplification problems, right? And, and, and so it's generally those like medium to high expressors um, that uh, with like low p-values that you're that, that you're really looking for. So like if something was like very high expressed like you know, let's just say like ten thousand of like your sequencing reads, your your sequences, your sequences go to this gene, and in your disease it goes to like two. You know, you can be pretty sure that that's like a real signal regardless of whether or not there was really 10,000 sequences that was in one group and really two in the other, right? Very interesting. So, caveat. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's. I mean, like, uh, again, I'm, I'm making it out to be kind of bleak, but I mean, there are things that you can do to be sure that what you're seeing is is, is correct.
0: Well, I mean, it, it's interesting because su- suppose you're a PI, suppose you're in the situation of being a PI, there has to be some... Level of certainty within your own head, right? That I want to take my graduate student, who is my resource, and and have this student work on this problem. And I I wonder what that process is like. I want them to have something that's going to be fruitful, but I also don't want to miss out on an opportunity, right? Right. I guess how would you go through? How would you go about that process if you're in that situation? You're like you're being a mentor to somebody and maybe that somebody is you five years ago, like, how, how would you decide to give yourself a particular project or not knowing what you know now?
1: So I will say this, you never know what a project is going to turn out to be like, you just don't. And and so the way that the way that I've seen it being done, right. Is you give it the benefit of the doubt. And, And I think there's, you know, like, I think that this is, applicable not to you know just science but i feel like uh, i feel like my personal philosophy when it comes to like taking risks and you know like you know like uh, in life right is is that i i I should never expect uh, although i should be prepared for the worst that happens i should never expect that the worst happens Uh, because i think that detracts away from my experience with while you know like while doing it so like you never know even like you never know how a project turns out uh you just don't like a perfectly designed project with a very competent pi still might not yield you know like fruitful results um for one reason or the other um and that's happened in the past and it's disappointing but i think like one learns to roll with the blows and you know realize that you know like science is a process like i think one thing that a lot of people don't you know like a lot of people who don't do research understand is that science is a really arduous process it's not I come up with a hypothesis and it's immediately validated it 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 takes years to even figure out what the right hypothesis is (laughs) so um so uh, yeah I, I don't think I'd hold like you know if I if I were a mentor right I don't think I would I don't think I would um I don't think I would hold you know I would I would I would give you know I would give I would assign projects as I you know as I thought that you know like that would challenge you know the person that I'd be you know giving the project to or to try to really you know get them to understand uh, like try to get them to like an understanding for what they're doing rather than hoping it bears fruit. But again, I'm not in a PI position where funding is on the line and you know and all that and that sort, right.
0: Yeah, I guess I just want to kind of get into the the mind of somebody who's gone through this process, right? You've gone from beginner to where you are currently, which is definitely not beginner. I don't know how you would what you would call yourself currently.
1: Yeah, I don't know either.
0: <laughs> right, but I think what you said is very very important. That it's not linear, going from hypothesis to conclusion. Right. When you start, you might be on, you know, three quarters of the way through. They're just pushing through a paper and you're just cleaning up the data. Yeah. So I I just want to know, have you kind of developed an intuition for what things are important to form a hypothesis and and kind of take me through that process? Uh,
1: So I feel like. That, that is, I feel like that's one area that I'm really trying to grow more in is asking the right questions. Right. And, and that's not like, I think that's, that's, that's really something that's learned and trained. Um, and, and it's difficult, it's difficult to know, to know exactly what questions to ask. Um, and and beyond that, even when you know what question to ask, what do you need to do to actually prove that you're right? Is is not a trivial like neither of those is trivial. I think I'm a little bit better. You know, like I am currently first authoring a methods paper right now, and, and we're basically looking at you know, five different sequencing methods to profile um, like, your, like your like your like your immune receptors and your like uh, and your um, RNA. Right, in, in, in the context of like healthy donors and CLL and everything in between. Um, and so I've gotten a little bit better at, OK, like what do we need to put in the paper to validate the point that we're trying to make? Um, and, and a large part of that is understanding what story you're trying to tell. Uh, like Because uh, like what, I, what I'm beginning to learn is that manuscript writing and paper writing is, is really storytelling, making sure that you have a solid story and the points that you want to emphasize and once you have that, you kind of get a better understanding for how you want to show it. Um, you know, still a long road ahead of me for that one. But I think I'm at least, you know, beco- becoming like more acquainted with that. Um, I have not had the privilege yet to design my own experiment from scratch. So you know, and although I like, I'm able to like formulate questions, like in like seminars or, you know, ask like meaningful questions in like group meetings about like, you know, this, you know, like about like a project, I I don't think I've built up quite an intuition for, you know, like having the key insight and like building like some, like, you know, like exciting hypothesis based off of like my, like my current knowledge. I think you're muted right now.
0: Oh, yeah. Sorry, I was muted. But I guess the limiting step here is just what the the baseline level of just facts that you 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 have at your disposal.
1: No, I, I think it's I think it's the way that I like. I think I, I don't like. I'm not sure as to you know like whether I'm you know at the level of you know I where I can like actually tease out like what's meaningful to ask. Although you know i I think I'm getting better at it, but. I I don't think I'm, I'm definitely not anywhere near like, you know, probably postdoc or, you know, like even, you know, somewhat a PhD student who's well within, you know, their, you know, know, well within their program.
0: Yeah. I think it's just something you develop, like exactly what you're saying as you go on, you just keep getting more and more exposed to it.
1: Right. And then you get better. Right. So it's, it's just a matter of that.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, the multidisciplinary approach that you, or I guess the multidisciplinary background that you have bringing into this, have you have you seen that play out yet, right? Those unique sort of um, ideas and, and perspectives that you bring in into this field of- Yeah, so- Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, no, sorry to interrupt. I, I, like, so I think one of the biggest things that I realized when coming into like the field of biology is that- like people who work in like medical research and are trained biologists or trained physicians think very differently than people who come from a more uh, like quantitative or computational background, like very, very, very differently. And, and so I think that there's been a lot of moments where, yes, I think my, like, my perspective on looking at things, right, is, has, has been really useful in, in solving like, like particular problems or coming up with an idea on a way to solve a particular problem. Um, uh, But, you know, I think it also has its drawbacks because because of that disconnect between, you know, like the the people with like, you know, more of a biological background in medical research and those with a more computational background, there's always a disconnect in terms of presentation and and communication. And, And one thing that I feel like I've actually gotten a lot better is communicating to wet lab scientists and physicians and you know biologists about computation, about sequencing, about informatics. So on that side, it, it's kind of burned me in the past, but but I, it, it's it's one that I'm glad that it has because it it has really elevated that aspect of my communication. Probably not apparent from this podcast, but <laughs>
0: no, I think that's that's actually a really really great point because. That's not even something I was considering when I was talking about how computation informs wet lab, right? It's even more, it's not just, oh, go look, go investigate this. It's, hey, do you guys consider this possibility or was this even in the realm of your consideration? Maybe it doesn't really impact them on what they're doing right then, but even even just knowing that information somehow kind of, I, I think it can serve to motivate you.
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely does. Right. I mean, like, uh, again, like, you know, like in the back of your mind, you're like, you know, like, I'm thinking about, about like, you know, like, how do we achieve, how do we achieve like significance with this, right? We designed the study in this way, right? But then they're more thinking about, you know, designing the study or, or something like that, right? Right. So, it, yeah, I think, I think both are necessary to make like meaningful progress in the field. And I think a lot of meaningful progress has been made because of, these the, like a more interdisciplinary and a more diverse um, um, group of people who are now participating in this type of research.
0: Yeah, the, I feel like if I want to think about the flip side of what we're just talking about. It would be interesting if you are someone who's been in the field long enough and you know the core technology so well that you can go into a project with a certain inkling and you can, can kind of maneuver and manipulate data to to kind of support your hypothesis right do you do you you think that that exists or that that could be a problem
1: yeah i mean like like people massage data all the time there's so many different ways to process the data that it's it's kind of crazy and i think a big part of why I, i i at least i had a lot of trouble formulating some of my thoughts in the beginning of this podcast is because like when i realized how i would actually communicate this this to somebody who has no knowledge of the field, but is asking the level of question that you're asking, right? I realize that there's like a huge amount to explain. And and I, I became uh, I start to stutter a little bit. But but, but but basically the the you know, there's a lot of things that I haven't shared with you that matter in data, in data pre-processing before you even get to the point where you're doing statistical analysis between the RNA counts between groups. There's so much you can do in between there. And, and indeed, like depending on you know, the design of your experiment or the nature of your project, you may choose to, you know, to implement some of the steps or not implement some of the steps. Uh, and, and and you certainly, even, and even at the statistical analysis step, you can certainly, you know, there've been a lot of people who've certainly massaged the data before.
0: Yeah, I just think that, you know, it's something that was in my realm of consideration. I think your point again is ex- explaining what you're doing to me, right? Somebody who does not know the deep intricacies of your field, it's a skill. It yes. certainly is a skill. And I think it's very important because, it gets me excited and it lets me know what exists without having to read this paper with all of this jargon. Right. Yeah, and I think that, that's, a, that's what kind of excites me a lot about how multi, multi inter, interdisciplinary things are becoming, right? Most people are having a, a computational background. Most people are having this like quantitative, qualitative, quantitative background that they're incorporating into the field. So I guess biology as a whole is no longer just wet lab. Right? it's becoming this thing where, where where people like you people like who are p- even purely computational can can sort of intermingle
1: yeah absolutely I, I like you know like I always catch myself trying to use jargon because it like it it because depending on who you're talking to right it mean it, it might mean something or might not mean anything at all and, and it's difficult to understand at what like at what point do you, you know, like at what what level do you need to step back to properly explain like a concept? Yeah, Yeah.
0: and I think a lot of that is kind of just knowing people, right? Just being experienced with talking to somebody who's not in your field. What are things that they know that I can sort of draw an analogy to? And that's why I think when we were talking about this in the beginning with the omics, like I think that word in in and of itself, it's kind of vague because I, I really don't even know what omics means.
1: Right.
0: So... You know, the, I think grounding it in DNA, for example, that was really great because, you know, DNA, that's like, that's the thing that is common to all living things. It's the, the information. Yeah, And it's really figuring out those points of communication. But I mean, another point that I'd like to bring up is when you were talking about the um, determining significance using this particular test, right? You said to somebody, what you said could be completely obvious. And to somebody like me, that was not completely obvious at all. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think overall we're headed in a very good place. That, that's my opinion.
1: I agree. There's a lot of work to be done, but there's, I mean, there's so many like, there's so many indications that we're on the right track. There's a lot of indications we're on the right track.
0: And that's what and- keeps you going?
1: I think so. I, I absolutely think so. Like, look at like, uh, like, look at where medical treatment is now compared to what it was even 10 years ago. We just produced a vaccine in, in the course of like a year that would have taken co- close to half a decade to produce like a couple of years ago. A- and a part of it was how rapidly we sequenced this the, the, like the the COVID-19 uh like well the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus um and how how readily available how readily open source it was uh I mean like you know cancer you know like although you know there's still a lot of there's still a lot of room to be had for improvement you know cancer treatment has you know, improved dramatically I mean even in the past like year or two I believe they like they have a like a cocktail drug to cure like cystic fibrosis something that was basically like you know neuron cure uh it, it, it like and it it made some big big news um you know I, I believe it was like a year ago or something like that uh, so and again all of the you know like we're making some big you know we're making big uh gains into understanding Alzheimer's disease there's um you know like again with like all this all the sequencing data and things like that people are you know, really trying to understand Alzheimer's from the, the like this aspect, like from the Im- immunology point of view. And, and it, it, like, you know, there's a portion of people who think that Alzheimer's, you know, is like is driven by, you know, the immune system to a degree. So, I mean, like there's, there's a lot of new insights that are happening all the time. And, and, you know, more and more things are becoming like, you know, like there are a lot more treatments becoming more accessible to more people. Uh, I think that we're, yeah, I think that overall we're moving in a very good direction and and that's what makes us, makes us worth doing and also exciting.
0: Right. Right. I I totally agree. I think one thing that I just want to quickly touch on is, uh, this is some, what you're doing is very practical in the ways that you just mentioned. Does it inform how you live your daily life at all?
1: So uh, like, although I don't think about it as much as I did before, especially when I started I, I definitely felt a sense of pride that like I was analyzing somebody's data and, and you know, like they might've passed, they might've not, because, you know, I'm blinded to these things. I, I have no idea, you know, what, like, what group someone belongs to or who the person is. But there was some pride that like this person felt the need to donate their samples right? Which is not always like an easy process by any means. They felt the need to contribute their you know, personal information to, you know, to science and, you know, like, and, and for me to be able to analyze that, to try to gain some sort of insight as to the, their disease in an effort to apply that to other people so that they don't share the same fate is, is something that I, I definitely take pride in.
0: Yeah, and I think that that seems to be the, the theme with you. If there were one. <laughs> yeah, I think so,
1: uh, good. No, no, I, I mean, like, uh, uh, in that, yeah, in that sense, it, like, you know, like it, you know, regardless of, you know, like, you know, the bureaucracy that exists in, you know, like medical research or regardless of, you know, like the ups and downs of like the day to day, like minutia, right? it's this is still the field that I st- like you know would want to be working in even after I you know get like a, ma- a master's in machine learning and you know go off you know to wherever I think I still would like to be doing research that I think would that would hopefully impact the everyday person
0: And I guess do you want to get closer to the patients in this process? So
1: I mean, It, it, I mean, like, you know, I, I think that, I think that's a difficult question to answer, not because like, you know, like in a perfect world, if I could, you know, like, I would, but I mean, like, there's a lot of you know, eth- both ethical and like, you know, like, you know, like a- actual limitations for why I can't you, like, for example, HIPAA, uh, you know, like patient confidentiality and, and the fact that I am not running these clinical trials, right. And I don't necessarily think I feel the need to run a clinical trial, mostly because I, you know, like. I'm, I'm not necessarily on track to be a physician anymore. And I don't necessarily regret that. Um, but I mean, that's just one aspect I, you know, I am okay with. I am okay with not being as involved as maybe I initially would have liked. Um, I, so, I mean, I think for me, you know, like if anything does come out of my work in the future, it would be enough for me to understand that this at least impacted one person. Like that's my goal. If I if like if it, if it this had a realistic impact on one person I'm it's good enough for me and I know it sounds corny but it's 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 just good enough
0: yeah I'm super with it I'm likely it has right
1: yeah I, I'd like to think so right because you know even though you know like, even though, like the papers that I've been a part of are kind of abstract, you know, the, the the weekly group meetings I have with like my my direct boss, who is like a physician scientist, who is a cancer doc, and, and you know, and, and when, when she's not doing research, she's like treating patients, right? I'm sure that you know from all the insights that we've talked about with regarding you know, the data that you know we've been looking at, and all of these things, I'm sure it has to some degree informed her opinion or form, you know, like, you know, something like, you know, formed her understanding of this, is this, 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 disease enough to where she can probably, she can better, you know, assess and uh, assess and treat her patients. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I think in a, in a more, in an abstract way, probably, but, you know, it would be nice to see that, oh, Hey, look, like uh, a drug was developed from this particular insight and now it's being applied at this hospital, I don't know, like.
0: Yeah, and I, I believe with the way things are headed, at least from from this conversation, that those possibilities increase every single day.
1: Yes, yes, which
0: is nice. That's, that's amazing, right? That's amazing. The intention is there, and, and that's all you can do. Okay. Next time, I really want to talk about the microbiome.
1: <laughs> Dude, oh man. yeah i'm sad that we were able, to, were able to, i tried to throw it in i tried to throw it in you
0: did you did and the reason i didn't like latch on to it is because i wanted it to be its own thing
1: i don't yeah i, I don't think in the, the in the context of this conversation it's, it's that important but i mean i did want i didn't want to like i i because i realized that i didn't do a good job answering your explanation for why you couldn't derive meaningful differences Right. I, I gave one aspect, which is, again, like it's just too specific, but it's not just specificity, right? It's not it's not just it's not just how sensitive, uh, you know, like like your, your your techniques are or how applicable they are. It's also just the fact that there's it's not in isolation, which is another huge part of the right of the equation. Yeah.
0: But I mean, hey, it's hard. It's hard for I mean, if you ask me about some like intricate detail about something really specific I'm working on and I forget three of the five things I was gonna tell you. That's just like <laughs> virtue of the conversation.
1: Right, that's fair. Right. I feel
0: like each one of these things that we talked about had had an ability to to sort of be talked about for another 20, 30 minutes at a time.
1: Yes. It's yeah. <laughs> I yeah, yeah, yeah. You kept the conversation moving at a good pace, right? Because you're right. It's they could have uh, yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think I think what what we just established is sort of an overarching, very general framework. So that if we want to do this again, which I hope you do, that'd be awesome. Uh, we can talk about the details. Like I want to I get into what is that step in data analysis that we didn't talk about? And let, let's like sure. dig into that so I can just understand because that wasn't in my realm of consideration. This, this, this conversation about the multi-level, uh, sort of the multi-dimensional information that you can combine, like the transcriptome, the, the genome, the, I don't know, where that, whatever ohm else exists, yeah. the epigenome. Like the, the, those things I'm really interested in hearing about.
1: Right. Yeah. There's so, there's so much. There's so, there's so much.
0: To, uh, I'm trying to uh, extract uh, that from you. You know, like, I think to, this, to like today, I know we talked about this, you know, just during our conversations on Thursdays or whatever, but I feel like today at the level that you describe things, I have a pretty good sense of specifically the problem that you're working on. Right. And I think yes. that's, that was the point.
1: I'm glad you got that out of whatever garble I was speaking. I, was no,
0: I think, to. I think it's very coherent. Everything that we talked about was pretty coherent. I mean, there were t- times where we were just like going, but I think we, you, I mean, you did a great job of bringing it back, right? Because there, there was a very distinct point where we, you're talking about the two things, the two uh, major revolutions that you're most excited about. And I was no. trying to move deeper into alpha fold. And then you were like, yeah. no, 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 no. I want to go back to um, immunology.
1: The hold is a whole beast on its own, man. I was trying to read that paper, and it it was nasty. It, it like god go Yeah, the, yeah. They were like, it, it it's a it's a really like it's a it's a it's a multi-level algorithm, and and, yeah. and it, it's like, it, it's pretty intense.
0: I just and, remember seeing one part of it where they're modeling uh, bond angles as a continuous function, and that's part of. The, the assumption on the model that they're 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 working with, and I was just like, okay, this is probably way more complicated than I thought because I thought it was just like take these convolutional blocks, apply them to some boy, and then go up and down and up and down. But it's- no, it's
1: tough. Yeah. so so the first part's easy. So so so, 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 so let me hit you with it. So 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 basically, what it tries to do, right? So, I, like, I think what's important to understand is what the input, what 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 the training data even looks like. Yeah, and and and. and, and and, and what is happening in in in, in the specific uh, in this specific algorithm so the algorithm is really put, broken up into two steps right take tra- tra- so the first step is take the training data run a neural network on it and get some sort of distance matrix okay okay and the second step is take this distance matrix turn this matrix turn this distance matrix into some sort of potential energy function, right. Parameterize this potential energy function with the bond angles. Yeah. And then use the stochastic gradient descent to minimize the energy. Wow. The client, that. So the second part, I, I could not tell you how the hell they do this. <laughs> I see. I, see. I, I can give you some, some jargon that I saw in the paper, but I, like from an understanding point, I don't quite understand, but I can explain the first part because the first part is actually more in my wheelhouse. Yeah. So um a, a part of like genomic sequencing data, right, is you don't just sequence these things and just call it a day. You actually have to figure out where the sequences are on the genome. And this is a step called alignment. You take your sequencing reads and you align them to some reference. Yeah. Okay. And so this is called so this is a process called reference alignment. You have one reference that you try to align all your reads to. Mhm. And then there's another type of alignment called multiple sequence alignment. This is where there's no reference in mind, but you want to get a sense for how different each sequence is from each other. So you try to align the sequences up all relative to each other and try to identify what the differences might be. Okay. So the, mul- this multiple sequence alignment step is really the input data that's going to alpha four, Okay. So let's just say, so they're training, like they train their data on like a protein database. Okay. And so you're going through like, pro, like let's just say you have like the SARS the SARS protein you know this 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 covid protein that you're looking at in, in this protein database right and this protein doesn't just necessarily exist in you no know, this covid virus there are very there are called what are called homologous sequences what that means is related sequences that come from a common ancestry okay that you do know the sequence information about so let's just say you see a version of this particular of this particular protein in humans and in chimps and things like that. But they differ just a little bit. Okay. So you do a multiple sequence alignment. And so you have all these similar sequences that come from different species, right? For the presumably the same protein. Okay. So then here's where the critical assumption comes in. And this is not this is not unique to AlphaFold, but it's something that they leverage. The critical assumption is that okay, these proteins are similar to each other, right? And what I expe- what I expect is that if let's just say like like uh, you know the proteins made up of amino acids, right? Um, let's just, like what if I find like what if like I see one amino acid that moves like that like uh, that shifts a little bit in like another sequence, but then another amino acid also shifts whenever the, like let's just say okay I, like, let me let me clarify let's just say for like a given homologous sequence like just one sequence not the entire line but just one sequence you identify two protein uh, two amino acids one at position x and one at position y okay you look at another homologous sequence and you also look at the two the same two amino acids but let's just say it's shifted by X plus one and the other is shifted by Y plus one. You know that those two are correlated now. You know, the position X and position Y are correlated because they both move every time one of the other moves. And you can make some, and you can make some assumption about their association with each other. That must mean that those two amino acids are in relatively close contact with each other. So with these multiple sequence alignments and all of your different amino acids, you can construct a, a, a covariance matrix based off of which amino acids you think move in tandem with each other. And that's, that's your training brilliant. data. That's actually yes, brilliant. Like, that's your training data. And, and of course, you also combine that with, you also combine that with, um, you also combine that with information that you got from like other information from the protein database like for example like i I actually don't know what the other other meta uh, metadata information you would get but you would also append that onto the matrix basically you feed that into a deep neural net and what this deep neural net gives you is um for every for every convolution right and the reason why they do the convolution of like the 64 like the 64 by 64 is because like if you have a huge amino acid you don't want to train on the huge amino acid because you risk overfitting or over overtraining and it's also computationally very intensive so you just train sections at a time and that's also biologically meaningful because y- your 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 protein at the end of the day is also made up of different subsections that have different functions so it makes sense um either way they take a convolution right and they're able to ask like for every amino acid pair in your co- in your covariance matrix it gives you a probability distribution for how far do you think that those two amino acids are away from each other. So now you have this huge distance matrix. And now you try to take that distance matrix and, and you try to, you basically try to fit some continuous function to it. And you use, this is where my understanding starts to fade. But like you try to fit like some continuous function to all those little po- probability distributions that you generated, right? using splines, and, and then you somehow incorporate that into this energy potential. And then you also add some electrostatic interactions like van der Waals forces, and, and you parameterize it using your bond angles somehow black magic to me. But then you use stochastic gradient descent to minimize that energy and boom, you have alpha full.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah, uh, I think it took two years or something to fully develop. But I could just yes. imagine the process where you were just like, oh, what if we did this thing? What if we like, this thing moves and this thing moves with it? What if we just use gradient descent? <laughs> it's, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. And and it works. Yeah. I think the thing that I'm excited about is how excited you're about it. You are about it, right? Because that's that's where you're headed in terms of your yeah. realm of expertise.
1: Hopefully, hopefully.
0: You, ha- you have this very highly multifaceted background and now you're formalizing this thing and this thing can marry all those together that's what it is
1: that's the hope that's the hope right i there's i think there's still a long way to go there's definitely a, a long way to go but
0: yeah
1: one day I can, yeah i hope to be able to contribute to research to that level yeah it would be really cool
0: to go to london go to deep mind
1: what a time dude this is awesome
0: I feel like it's been a while
1: since we've actually talked talked about the nitty gritty. Yeah, talk about yeah, something like that. Yeah, right.